Aloha, unconventional friends out there. I hope you're doing well, and if you're not doing well, you will do better at some point, because we all do. It's Sunday morning where I am. I just finished recording an amazing interview with the extraordinary Samantha Ross. Samantha was my student at LaSalle College, and uh, we remain friends. I am so, so proud of where she is right now. There's so many things that I am learning from Sam as a... Uh, as we speak, and I highly, highly, highly encourage you to to listen to this podcast. For today's uh, segment on I Like What I Like, I Like a Song by Kane Brown. It's called Worship You. I love this song. I have never heard of Kane Brown before. I found him accidentally on social media when somebody played uh, his music. His country pop, but he has a depth about him and his lyrics have a very interesting twist. So I'm not a big fan of country music. I never really listened. I don't think the song specifically is, is country, but I really, really love this, uh, this, uh, this artist. Once again, the name is Kane Brown. The song that I love is called Worship You, but he also has a lot of other very fun songs uh, like that. And um, yeah, check it out. Kane Brown on iTunes Music or Spotify, wherever you are listening to this. So right now, uh, I'm preparing the uh, podcast with Samantha Ross. So stand by in a couple of seconds. You're going to hear the amazing Samantha Ross talk about her struggles with um, learning disabilities, her passion for golf, uh, and what it's like to work for your family business and how you can actually be happy about that. Uh, this is your unconventional professor. This is Loredana Padurian. It's a sunny, sunny morning where I am right now, and I'll be back with Samantha Ross. Samantha Ross, how are you today? Good, how are you? I'm so excited to hear your voice. I haven't seen you in a couple of years. For those of you who don't know, Samantha Ross was my student in Boston. We met about 10 years ago, I think. Yeah. Maybe a little bit more. And uh, before I ask her my first question, I want to tell you that I meet, I don't know if I'm, I already have probably a thousand students that, that went through my class or I meet over a thousand students in my career. And Sam is one of those people that I will always remember. And it's not because she has blue hair and she's loud and she's very unconventional in a, in a visible way, but she has a quiet strength about her. She's very sunny. She's very positive. I remember, I don't know if you know this, Sam, but I remember when you come in, when you came to my class for the first time. Can you believe that? The first yeah. time when you walked in my class, you had a backpack, uh, you had sneakers. I don't remember the color. And <laughs> you looked at me, you smiled, you nodded, and then you sat down and you were a little bit quiet in the first 20 minutes or so. And then the first time you raised your hand and you answered one of my very sharp questions, I was like, all right, we have to pay attention to this one. She's a smart one. <laughs> that was uh, was junior year, junior year of college. That uh, I remember that well as well. So, what do you remember about my class? Oh, geez. I well, I remember uh, you always rode your bike to class, regardless of the weather <laughs> in Boston. Uh, in high heels, no. In high heels, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Back in the days when I used to care about high heels. 
And it was honestly, uh, I ended up taking classes with you after that because um, I wanted to. It, it, I no longer needed to meet any requirements. I, I would just overload my schedule with any class I could take with you just because there was so much value that I got out of all of your classes. Thank you, Sam. I, um, the time I spent at LaSalle College is one of the most emotionally validating uh, professional experience I had. And uh, I think we both know that LaSalle was not necessarily a top 10 college in, in at least in U.S., but there was something about the people. Yep, absolutely. And they were incredibly lucky to have you. Oh, thank you. I was incredibly lucky to meet you and I still I'm still in touch with so many students from well graduates now from from LaSalle every time I go back to Boston I try to meet uh, a few and uh, yeah it's a very very special place in my heart my colleagues at LaSalle were were wonderful my former boss Nelsie Waldron taught me the mantra of my life which is the job is easy the people are not so I have <laughs> that's a good place for me so let me jump straight into the questions. And the first question probably will also allow you to introduce yourself a little bit better to, to our audience. Um, Samantha Ross, what makes you an unconventional person? So, like you said, I think um, when, when you first look at me, you wouldn't think that I'm necessarily unconventional. Um, but I think just my educational background really shaped a lot of who I am. I, I grew up with uh, undiagnosed severe learning disabilities. Uh, it wasn't until the end of my junior year of high school that uh, I was diagnosed with severe dyslexia and severe ADHD. And basically I had to teach myself how to learn. Uh, the public school system just wasn't great for me, but it, it was never picked up on. And um, hmm. That came with a lot of failure very early in life and came with a lot of being called lazy and being told that I just didn't want to do the work, uh, which led to a lot of frustration and a lot of self-doubt, especially as, as a child. I remember in fifth grade being threatened to be held back because I, I switched letters in a word um, oh. and a fifth grader shouldn't make those mistakes. So um, I, I grew up needing to teach myself how to manipulate the public school system to work for me. And as an adult, I was able to kind of translate that experience into my life, both personally and professionally. Um, and I think that blessed me with a lot of empathy in life as well. So that basically just gave me the ability to, to see other people and what they're going through and, immediately respond to that. I don't think empathy is a very unconventional quality, but it's how you respond to that, that empathy that can be unconventional. And, and yeah. I've learned through my experiences that you just need to put down what you're doing to help people as well. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm always so impressed when very young people like you have such a, such a strength, such a strength, such a, a strong emotional maturity about it. I have to say, for those of you who don't know, Sam was my student, and I think she was always top three of my class, if not number one in my class. And I never knew until we became friends that Sam had any any learning disabilities. So you were extraordinarily at over overcoming this, Sam. And the only thing that we had in common in, in that sense that we both share a, uh, an ADHD diagnosis, and sometimes we talk about treatments, but um, 
This is really, really impressive. I, I don't know how I'm going to answer your question. I hope it's not such a hard question because this was a very, very impressive answer, Sam. Yeah. What do you have for me? So for you, um, I've always thought about this and I've always actually wanted to ask you this. I remember in our classes, you used to always tell us that you had so many different career paths and jobs that, that you that you held throughout your life. I think you always did that because you wanted to teach us, you know, that you're not married to one job. You're not married to one industry. Keep exploring yeah. that you like. And I always wondered what ultimately, like what factors led you to going into teaching and in your current position? So great question. I didn't have um, 19 different jobs because I set it up to be this way. Um, there were many factors. I, uh, I grew up in, in Romania in, um, in a very broken post-communist regime. I mean, communism was bad, but what, what happened after that, at least for the first 10 years, was really bad. And the economy was so bad that uh, I remember uh, working full-time and not being able, with a salary that I would, would make working full-time, not being able to pay the rent, let alone the rest of the the expenses and my my parents were not rich by any means and I remember going home and my mother looking at a cupboard and being like okay this is how much we can eat this month and yeah. it was a pretty drastic reality but I always learned how to be frugal believe it or not as as much as I seem to be high maintenance I actually know how to be frugal <laughs> and I also know how to maximize resources I learned that from my grandmother but uh, so at first I did that because of necessity. Mm -hmm. So I pretty much took any job that anybody would ever give me in a country that was going through the biggest financial crisis of its history. Wow. Uh, when I went to college, we just survived, I think, a massive Ponzi scheme. Uh, the country was highly, highly broken in many ways. So at first it was like, let me get whatever job somebody gives me. So when I graduated high school, I graduated with a teaching degree. It was a special high school. It was a five years high school instead of a four. It was an amazing learning experience. But then college was terrible for me. I went to a college just because of the name of the college and I hated it in the first semester. And I ever never wanted to be a professor, Sam, because I never saw anybody in front of the classroom who was not a, an old white man sitting down on his chair at the desk and reading from a book. And I remember thinking as a teacher myself, but I was obviously a pro a preschool teacher and I had so many methods of trying to keep my kids entertained and I was thinking why don't they do the same I mean teaching is teaching I don't care if you're three years old or 15 or 25 yeah so um but then when I um I started my first startup actually back in the days we didn't call them startups <laughs> we just called them you know I started a, I started the business and we failed financially. We had a lot of success from a marketing perspective, but we just didn't know how to balance the books. I went to Switzerland for my master's. And then while I was there, I met a couple of people at MIT. And they, I remember going to visit MIT and I sat in somebody's class. I sat in Professor Roberto Rigobon's class. And I don't, know, I don't know if you guys know of him, but you should Google him, Roberto Rigobon. And he is the most unconventional person I've ever met in my life. And his class was loud and fun and engaging. And he was, he used a lot of curse words, which I was like, oh, okay, finally, one of mine. Until, until I realized, you know what? Actually, I don't have to fit this, this, fit this pattern to be a professor. And 
uh, one of my mentors told me I, I was offered the scholarship to stay for a PhD and I wasn't really interested in that because I wanted to be an entrepreneur. But my, uh, my mentor said, if somebody gives you money for education, you better do that because that's the biggest inv- uh, investment in yourself. Oh, wow. So like I said, I didn't want to be a professor. It was sort of like a thing that came, that sort of fell in my lap. But I do remember, Sam, when I taught at Brandeis before I met you and I taught at Brandeis, being for the first time in front of students, I felt home. Oh. I felt like finally my 19 different crazy jobs brought me to the place that made me happy. I remember being in front of students, getting immediate validation, uh, being paid to be curious. Yep. And I was like, I got it. I think, I think this is it. That's it. You found your, yeah. your career. That's great. I think so. And, and it seems like my students like my class, which is probably the, the best thing, right? I mean, it's one thing to love your job, but if other people don't love what you do, then, you know. Yeah. No. So speaking of jobs, um, you work for your family, right? Tell us a little bit about your, your company. What do you do? And my, my primary question is, what is it like to work for your family? And the reason why I'm asking you this I have a lot of students and graduates who work for their family, and it's always a very interesting dynamic. By the way, I met your family. Please say hello to your, <laughs> your father and your mother. Donatella, your mother, and I speak Italian every now and then. We have a chance, but you have a lovely family. Tell me, what is it like to work for a family, and what do you do? So I'm a project manager. We own and operate child care centers throughout um, New York. That's, that's where I am. Um, we have eight centers. Uh, at one point, when I first joined on, we actually had I think sixteen centers. Uh, so we've gone down. We've gone down quite a bit of a uh, downsizing phase recently, of course. Um, but we're we're starting to pick back up. Uh, so I'm a project manager for them, and you know our company fits pretty well in with this podcast in terms of unconventional in in the childcare industry. <laughs> there's there's really just no one hat that anybody wears. Um, and that's all the way from our caregivers to our directors to our office staff. We all are just kind of thrown in everywhere. Um, so as a project manager, I can handle anything from building out a new center if we're expanding to placing food orders every week Uh as of right now, obviously with COVID, that's been a pretty big struggle for us. We just got all of our centers reopened um, and we're operating at about 33% right now, which is pretty well. Um, so we had to make a big decision to put a pretty big investment into a new marketing campaign. Um, and I've been handling pretty much 24-7 for the past two weeks, just making sure that everything kicks off. Um, But in in terms of working with my family, it has been by far the best experience I I could have ever asked for. Uh, My mom retired a few years ago. She's not as involved um, in the company, but my dad and I work side by side every single day. And it's we've always had a very close relationship to begin with. Um, but this has just brought us even closer. And I'll tell you, um, when I first made the decision to go into the family business, my dad was not happy about it. He, really? yeah, he did not want me. He thought that I felt obligated to be there. 
Interesting. Wasn't until recently that I even opened up to him about why I made the decision. Um, and it, it was two factors, really. And, and the first one was pure emotion. How could I, you know, let a company that that practically raped me uh, go? You know, if I didn't go into it, nobody in the family would have. And I didn't want to see it go. And the second was yeah. was a little less romantic, if, if you will. Um, <laughs> I I'm, I was in and like I said, I, I struggled through my academic career before getting to LaSalle. Um, and I just lacked confidence in what I could do and what I could be good at. And I felt that, you know, I knew the industry, I, I knew the company, and I knew I would be in a safe place uh, with my uh-huh. family. And it, it wasn't until going to LaSalle that I realized, like, hey, I, I can learn and, and I can figure things out and, and I am competent. I, I, I know what I'm doing. Uh, and once I got into my role, I learned pretty quickly that I wasn't there because I couldn't be anywhere else. I learned pretty quickly that wow. I could go out and I could get a job in Manhattan. I, I could go be a project manager elsewhere and I would be able to, to fill that role. Um, I was there because I loved it and I love working with my family. I love what we do. It's so important, um, especially through this pandemic. And, and that's also, you know, that, that created some validation as well, you know, parents relied on us for as long as we could stay open and and you heard those kind words during that time so yeah yeah that's amazing I um I really love what I said about um you know I I I started to build confidence and I realized that confidence comes from competence I actually said that recently um very profound Sam very profound where this where this comes from in such a young person I don't know (laughs) All right, hit me next. Alrighty, please. the next question. So, <laughs> I'm sure you've heard the saying, "Hindsight is 2020," and it's like yeah. a rather appropriate saying for the year 2020. But <laughs> looking back on all of your past experiences and professions, and does any event or any failure jump out at you when you hear that phrase? And I, I know anyone can turn around and and say like, yeah this this event and I could have done this differently I'm I'm a little more interested to hear like how do you move past that failure when when you've identified it um yeah so when I I told you uh in the beginning that I loved my high school experience it was a very um it was applied learning we did a lot of action learning even though back then when when I don't think anybody knew what action learning is and um when I went to college, I went to college as a founding class of a new program. Uh, it was international relations, and my program was specifically in European studies. At that point, the European Union was sort of forming, and or it was already formed, and Romania was trying to get in. And there was a, a very glamorous, a glamorous uh, sales speech by the university to, to the students. And once I got there, within weeks, I realized that Yes, I am the founding class, which means that these people don't have a curriculum yet. They don't know what they are doing. They don't know why they are doing it. They don't have any real tools to help us um, in, in the promise. And I became jaded quickly. I, I have, um, I remember, and I have a lot of friends from back in, in, in college, but I remember going back to my parents and saying, I want to drop out of, of college and apply next year. See, in, in Europe, in most educational settings, you cannot just choose another major. 
uh, once you made a decision, you're it. And I think that it's such a, des- a such a dangerous design because you assume that somebody at 18 or 19, they know what they want to do for the rest of their yeah. lives. Uh, and that is such a linear path. And maybe that's why I fought so hard my entire life uh, to tell my students, I don't care if you restart everything at 25, at 30, at 35, at 40. It's still okay. You are validated to yeah. do that. And uh, my, my parents, who obviously were very traditional, and I don't think my mother always had the same job her entire life. My father had the same job his entire life until he retired and became an entrepreneur. But it was a very unheard, it was a very unheard, like, what do you mean you're going to drop out and go back next year? You mean you're going to lose a year of your life? And I don't blame them for that. This is, this is what the thinking was. Uh, and still, a lot of people have this thinking. But what happened, Sam, is that I became so frustrated with my, my school that instead of trying to do something positive about it, I, I pretty much did the minimum necessary enough to pass um, I actually failed my third year in college. My junior year, I failed and I had to repeat, which, by the way, isn't that the irony? I, I didn't lose a year. I, I, uh, my mother asked me not to lose a year, and I did. And I really, really feel like that is something that I should have fought harder. I always fought for the things that I wanted, even with my family, at the cost of our you know, emotional relationship. Yeah. But for some reason, in this case, I, I didn't fight enough. And I am really sorry for that. And the reason why I am sorry is because I, I lost a lot of years of learning. I mean, I learned differently and everybody can always say, yeah, but look at you now. Yeah. But um, it's, it's something that I could have done better. I, um, also, but I have to say, I, I, I recently um, listened to Miley Cyrus. She was on a podcast, on a RuPaul podcast. And Miley said... Um, you know, she was a child superstar. I think she, she became a superstar when she was six or something like that. And um, RuPaul asked her if she is a different person today than she was five years ago. And she said, absolutely, yes. She, she partied really, really hard uh, when she, she was the right age to party. And now she doesn't feel like she needs to do that anymore. And I have to say, as, as bad as my college academic experience was, boy, oh boy, did I party, I guess, to compensate that. So... You know, that makes me feel like, oh, I don't miss my 20s because I did exactly what I wanted to do. But yeah, I, I would say that, that that is an experience that I'm sorry that I didn't fight harder for, that I look back and I don't look back with pride. I don't look back with, um, I, I look back with a little bit of empathy since you mentioned that. But yeah, that is not something that was a positive experience in my life. And many other things happened because of that. I, I lost a lot of self-esteem. I, I beat myself up a lot. Um, but I didn't have any learning disabilities, but I did that to that. It's Sorry, crazy how quickly we can go to those places and, and identify it immediately. When somebody brings up like, what regrets do you have or what would you have done differently? We can go so quickly to those places. What it oh, is, yeah. is, you know, you come out learning so much from that. And that in and of itself gives you possibly more of a lesson than you would have even learned in that year. Um, so that's, yeah, I, I think that's true, but not yeah. for everyone. I, I think, um, I think, uh, you mentioned this, this capacity to reflect on your, um, disability and I actually want to talk about that next, but I have to say, I had a lot of colleagues who actually didn't really have, uh, resilience to come out of that strong. And, 
um, you know, as, a, as, a, as an educator, I feel very responsible for the type of education systems we have. And I'm, I'm frustrated. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm angry at this type of environments that do not take the responsibility of educating somebody yep. seriously. So speaking of, uh, like I said, speaking of, of disabilities, learning disabilities, um, I, I want to hear a little bit more, if you don't mind, about, about your, um, your learning disabilities. About I can only imagine the level of anxiety, the level of frustration, the level of self-doubt that would build in somebody so young. So you started to feel these things when you were still a very young teen. Um, what does it take to come out of that? But tell me a little bit about the struggle experience and then sort of the recovery process, because obviously you're here. Yeah. So it's actually really funny. I was just talking to my mom about that today um, with the whole the whole process of, of how I, I should have been diagnosed a lot earlier in my educational career. I grew up in a great town uh, with great school districts, um, but it I just fell through the cracks and part of the reason that I fell through the cracks I have a incredibly intelligent brother um and that's why you know teachers would say oh she's just lazy you know her her brother is yeah. so intelligent and he you know he's a doctor he's he's incredible my brother's my best friend um but yeah that that always was really tough and that also sparked a lot of comparisons in my mind at a, at a young age um oh. very quickly mm -hmm. started comparing myself to other people especially my brother um and that was always really tough growing especially at, at, you know I, I was aware of it in in even first grade in first grade I knew that something was different something was harder for me than it was for other kids um and what's really funny is actually my best friend diagnosed me dyslexic in fifth grade. We were doing homework together and I flipped the numbers and she was like, oh, Sam, you know, you have the answer right, but you flipped the numbers. You know, you wrote two in instead of 27. And uh, I said, oh, that happens sometimes. And I just erased it. And she was like, what do you mean that happens sometimes? I was like, yeah, doesn't doesn't that happen to you? And she was like, no, that's called dyslexia. Oh my but, God. Yeah, so we joke about that now. But yeah, growing up, it, it was really tough. I think once I had that diagnosis in my hand, you know, like at, at that point, I was what, probably 16 years old, 16 or 17. Um, at that point, you know, like, it, there was really no going back. It's not like you could reteach me how to read or, or, or how to spell or sound out words. Um, at that point, you know, I, what I had taught myself was my foundation. And, and the school mm. district really tried to overcompensate for it. My senior year, they put me in a class uh, where on the first day, the teacher wrote the word cat on the board. And it was me and two other kids. And she asked us to sound it out. And I just remember feeling so terrible uh, to be in a classroom like that, not only for myself, but for these other kids as well. Um, so, so having that diagnosis, I think for me, it, it kind of, it, it didn't make me feel bad. It didn't make me feel like I had struggle. It, it kind of validated my struggle. It, it made yeah, me feel like, okay, absolutely. there's a reason that I struggled. It wasn't just me. There was, there's something like, exactly. um, and, and it was never identified. So it just, if anything, it kind of boosted my confidence a little bit more. And throughout the years, I, I learned that what I did in elementary, middle and high school 
was actually, in my mind, it, it was more impressive than had I actually learned everything that my teachers taught me. I, I learned how to manipulate the system. I learned how to get around it and show what show them what I had to show them uh, to pass my classes. I remember um, when I realized that I have ADHD, I was actually talking to a friend. We were having dinner um, and it, it was a new friend. We We just met and I was, you know, sort of like making self-deprecating jokes about being all over the place and having so many careers. And the next thing I want to do, I want to be a taxi driver. And sort of he sort of looked at me and said, have you ever been diagnosed with ADHD? And I said, oh, no, is it, is it contagious? What is it? I didn't even know what it is. And I am talking about 20, I was 24 years old. And he gave me a book and I remember reading it and crying for days because like you said, I felt so validated and I felt like all of a sudden so many things make sense. And why is my attention span so short? And why can't I concentrate? And why am I so all over the place? Why am I the naughty girl? I don't know if you've ever been told that you're a bad child. You're a bad child. Go, in, yep. go and sit in the corner. You're a bad child. Yep. So, yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. I think sometimes having a label that that explains why you are the way you are it's a massive relief and at least there's mm -hmm. a path forward yep it, it like i said yeah it's that validation it, it makes you feel like okay I, I understand myself now i understand why this was happening and now i i can move forward without question in my mind of you know why am i like this um because because that creeps in and, yeah. and that really just eats away at your self-esteem and your confidence it just it it just completely destroys it at times um and and even still knowing those diagnoses um you know i i still wake up some mornings where it's just you know why why can't i get this right why can't i do it and and i take a step back yeah. and remember like okay maybe doing it this way isn't going to work for me let's try another way um I woke up this morning. It's morning where I am right now. It's a rainy morning and it's Sunday and I have so much work ahead of me and I woke up with massive anxiety um, and I, I feel so overwhelmed by everything that I have ahead of me. And I was thinking, well, maybe it's it's a good take to take a pill. So the, the two of us, we talk about the, the medical treatment for this and I do take speed every now and then, but I don't like what it does to me the day mm -hmm. after. So uh, it's amazing the day of, but the day after I'm, I'm really messed up. So it's always a trade-off between, you know, do I have an amazing day and then two shitty days after that? Or do I just, you know, yep. pull through? Yeah, I've, I've learned, and not to get too much on this topic, but I've, I've learned for me, it's the hard stop throughout my day that really helped me. Um, if I can schedule hard stops in my day where I say, okay, you know what, I have an hour's worth of marketing work to do today. Uh, let's let's get through an hour and then I'm going to have a hard stop where I'm going to go and actually do something in, in a different office, in a different uh, room from where mm -hmm. I am. That has really gotten me away from medicating and able to kind of handle my own ADHD um, naturally. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an exercise. I think you can do it. I think you have to be very much aware of it. You have to pay attention. You have to recognize the the symptoms. You have to recognize the patterns. Um, but 
you know, like you said, let's 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 not make the, the podcast all about this. But it is very much a, a learning journey, and it's very much a journey of constantly being reflective, paying attention, and then you know yep. having the right tools. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's your turn for another. I think it is. Question, so. <laughs> you have always been one of my biggest mentors, um, business personally. Um, I've always felt like I could come to you with an, with uh, anything. You've always given me such great advice. So my question to you is, Thank you. who is one of your biggest mentors and what is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Um, it took me a while to realize who were my mentors. And it took me a while to realize that you learn different things from different people. I would say the first influential person in my life was my grandmother. Um, and I don't think at the time I realized how impactful she she is going to be for the rest of my life. And uh, I, the biggest regret of my life is not being home when she died. Uh, but as I, as I started to, to grow up a little bit and be older and, and sort of think about a lot of things that I do that are very much informed by how she educated me. She was an amazing entrepreneurial woman in a very, very strict communist regime. She survived the war. Um, she never told me this specifically, but uh, I think she had some very, very intense interactions with uh, the German Nazis when she was a young girl and they were in, in her village. Um, but she taught me how to be frugal in a sustainable way. What do I mean by this? Um, she... Uh, she built her life, she built our life and our sort of food, food chain around seasons. We always had something interesting to eat, to do, to play with, uh, along with the seasons. She, she would always plan ahead. She would always look at the resources that we have and she would say, all right, this is what we do with this today. This is what we're going to make out of this tomorrow. And this is how long yep. this is going to last us. And uh, today when I teach sustainability, I always think about her. You know, the truth is that poor people teach you sustainability in a better way than anybody else. Because I, I remember, Sam, looking at the, we had a garden, even though it was illegal to have your own gardens in, in communism. But she was a rule breaker. I think had she lived in a normal society, she would have been probably one of the most successful entrepreneurs of all time. But she had a garden and she would plant the garden according to the seasons. And she would say, all right. By early April, we can have salad. By early May, we can have maybe the first strawberries. By early June, we can have, you know, the first carrots or something. And she would always plan ahead and everything else extra that we had was, was saved, was canned, was preserved. And I never really realized how, how fundamental her philosophy was until I became an adult. My second, my second, I wouldn't say mentor, but something that stuck with me for 10 years now is, like I said, Nancy Waldron, which you might remember from yeah. the South. She was my boss. And I remember going to her when I told her that I'm leaving for, for you know, this MIT role. And she looked at me, she smiled and she said, we always <laughs> knew that you're too good for this. And, you know, that, that was very touching. But uh, I, I so well remember this. I was sitting in her office and I was telling her that I'm leaving and it was sort of like a, a very touching goodbye. And I told her, I said, Nancy, I am so worried about this new job. It's such a big job. I've never done 
anything like this before. I'm not really sure I have the right skills. I don't even know how to start. Yes, after all, it's starting a business from scratch. And she, she smiled. She looked at me. She said, oh, Loredana, the job is easy. <laughs> the people are not. And that pretty much built my last 10 years of my career. That statement is the foundation of how I look at things, of how I understand myself. I'm not very good with people, believe it or not, Sam. I, I don't enjoy being a manager, um, but that stuck with me wow. for forever. Since then, and then obviously my 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 mentor is my uh, my my current boss, who is an amazing professor. He's an amazing leader, uh, but he's somebody that is so so different than than who I am. That it took me a while to realize that I shouldn't try to be that but I should try to be myself, just a better version of myself. Wow. That's great. Yeah, I, I remember when you told <laughs> us that you were leaving uh, to, to start the business school in Asia with uh, IT. And, um, I just remember being being so incredibly happy for you. Uh, and I, I also know graduating that same year, so. <laughs> so there were, there were, <laughs> yes. It's so like, all right, she can leave now because I'm leaving too. Yeah. Um, yes. Sam, you play yes, golf, right? So my, my fourth question for you is, um, what do you like about golf and what, what did golf teach you? Because I hear a lot of golfers talking about how golf teaches you skills that are um, applicable anywhere else in life. So what do you like about playing golf and what, what did golf teach you that you apply in your your daily life yeah, is there so such a thing? Golf was actually or is actually still the the first the only thing that I can focus on a hundred percent. I can put my mind a hundred percent on the course when I'm there. Um, which, you know, you 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 know with uh with ADHD that's not an easy ask for someone. Uh so yeah. I when I step onto the course, when I step onto the first tee box, I am a hundred percent there. Um, mentally, physically, everything is on the course. I'm, I'm not back in my office. Uh, so, so that in and of itself was always kind of my safe haven as a kid. So I, I started playing golf mm -hmm. at age four, um, still competing today. Wow. Um, obviously not on a, on a very high level, but so, so being out there, you know, it is frustrating after frustration being on the golf course the smallest thing that goes wrong in your swing reflects on on uh on your shot the way that the ball flies the way that it impacts everything so it's taught me a lot of patience in life um and I'm still learning mm -hmm. it because <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you right now I, I was on the course last Friday and I was swinging like I had never held a golf club before in my life and and <laughs> there there I had to sit out a hole because I was like, all right, I need to regroup. I need to get my mind back together. And then I went back out and, and I got it. I, I got there. But it taught me a lot about patience. It taught me a lot about trusting myself and the things that I had been taught. I've been taught by an instructor my entire life. Um, I've, I've only ever worked with three coaches. And uh, I, I know a lot about my swing. I'm 100% a feel player. I need to feel what's going on in my swing. And um, that self-correction on the course, which it doesn't sound like that's a very difficult thing to do, to identify what's going on in your swing and then 
you know, change mm. that behavior while on the course. That was probably the most difficult thing for me to learn. And it was able to be translated into my business, into my business, professional life, everything. Um, you know, e even my personal life with relationships, I I've learned, you know, every action has a reaction. So, you know, if I'm doing something wrong, yeah. I need to take a step back, reflect on it in that moment and get back to it. So golf has been a huge blessing in my life. My dad started me, like I said, when I was four and, uh, I'm still out there every Friday with him. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I see a pattern, not that I'm trying to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but you talk about self-correction and in a way self-diagnosis, which is, if you think about it, the same thing you did about your, yeah. your dyslexia. Uh, I think we start to learn, once once you figure out something, you start to learn how to apply it to different things. Um, it's interesting. I never really understood golf. I I don't understand the, the rules of the game. Uh, but I always, I always appreciate people who can be very, who can focus on, on a game like this. I mean, it's one thing to focus on basketball because it's so dynamic and yep. there's so many things happening. But I think when it comes to golf is, it's really... I don't know if it's like chess, but it's a really interesting game of concentration. And, yep. and like you said, it, it, it's you playing against the course, um, even in competition. That, that's how I go into it. I'm not playing a competitor. I'm playing the course. And whoever better on the course, mm -hmm. that's honestly who wins that day. Um, it's a great game, though. You should definitely get into it. Yeah, Malaysia has a lot of golf courses and a lot of business is done over the golf course. Uh, but I never, I never got into any sports. I, I was very excited about playing tennis and I have moments of intense focus and clarity when I play tennis, but to be very honest, I'm lazy. I'm, I, I'm, I just don't like playing sports. That's it. I'm a very competitive person otherwise, but I'm lazy. No, definitely not. All right. So what's next? Mm -hmm. What's so back at LaSalle in 2014, you had given me a few books. I don't, I don't know if you remember that. Um, and they really, what, yeah, they, yeah, so they, they, they really, shaped, uh, I, I read each and every one of them and they, they really shaped, uh, the person that I became the manager that I became and, and how I really tackled, you know, coming into a role where, you know, these people who I now have to manage have known me since I was seven. Um, so it really helped <laughs> me a lot. So my question for you is what are you reading these days? Do you have any suggestions? What, what books do you, do you love? What books keep you coming back for more? So first of all, I'm very flattered that I did something that was valuable for you. I send me a message <laughs> with the books because I don't remember. Uh, I'm always, I have to tell you, this is not going to sound like, you know, false modesty, but I'm always very shocked when students tell me, that what you did meant something or it helped me. I'm, I'm happy, but I'm also surprised. I'm like, oh, okay. I, I don't see myself that way, believe it or not. So I have to tell you that I don't read that much anymore because I think I'm so overwhelmed by the amount of information that I have to process for, for work. And especially this COVID environment of the lockdown and, and Zoom, I am yep. so Zoom fatigued. And I'm so tired of processing visual information. Um, and I had this conversation recently with my students and they were saying how 
how taxing it is to look at the screen for for 10 hours a day because that's what we do and i actually th- this is one of the reasons why i'm doing this podcast sam because i don't want to look at the screen anymore i want to talk to people i want to stay connected but i want to choose a different medium so as i'm talking to you i'm looking outside my window i have this very beautiful park that i see so i feel like i'm still connected but i don't have to uh use the same medium if it makes sense hmm. and that's why i started uh here uh, listening to podcasts I know I'm very late in the game and everybody's a <laughs> podcast aficionado but I started listening to podcasts because I couldn't tolerate anymore you know watching TV because my my brain is just so tired in that part yeah. of the, the the brain um yeah. having said that one book that I I started reading at the beginning of of the lockdown which was in March was a very validating book for me it's called Range by David Eckstein No I haven't Have you heard of it? <laughs> So Range is a very interesting book that starts by describing Tiger Woods game. <laughs> and and it talks about how Tiger Woods started playing golf and what is his process and he compares <clears throat> his process with the process of playing tennis by Roger Federer. And as I was reading the book I was like I don't really care about golf but this is so fascinating and I I understand tennis better but this is so amazing. And actually the book talks about the power of being a generalist in a highly specialized world and it talks about how people like you and me in a way who have done a little bit of everything um but are given a lot of you know feedback by society that is not good that you're not focused it's not good that you don't know what you want to do at the age of 16 it's not good that you don't stay on the same track actually is is a valuable skill to have So maybe I love this book because I feel like when I read it somebody validates me for being so all over the place um but actually it's a collection of stories so the book has I don't know about 12 cha- maybe more I don't remember chapters and every chapter is a different story it's a story of science a story of sports a story of arts uh it talks about how van gogh uh was also one of these people who was a generalist in a highly specialized world And I actually love the book so much that I I assigned it to my students uh to read it for our actual learning curriculum. So I highly recommend it. Range Perfect. by Just David Epstein. Yeah, yeah definitely. Let me know what you think. So I think I'm I'm reaching my final question if it's possible or not. This was such an amazing conversation Sam. And For those of you who don't know, I think the last time we talked, like really yeah. talked was in New York we went a out couple to of dinner. years ago. Yeah. This this goes to say that sometimes you don't have to talk to somebody yep. every day to stay connected. So my my last question is the question that I um, I'm asking people at the end of this this podcast. I think there's still a lot of closeted unconventionals. What do I mean by this? I think a lot of people have unconventional views they have an unconventional path but they feel so much pressure to to be in this box uh i have such a i have so much hate for this expression uh the box in the box think outside the box and i always tell my students whoever put you in the box whoever yeah. said that the box is real so do you have any advice for closeted you know unconventional so you have any advice for people who are struggling with something that is that is uh, unconventional within themselves but they feel the need to to put yeah, themselves so in this box. I think everything emotionally 
is so much easier said than done, right? So like you're thinking about your question, I, I, the first yeah. thing that comes to my head is I just want to say, just do it. Just go and be unapologetically you. And I, I think that was actually something that you had unapologetically, you used that. Um, yeah. Unconventional. Yeah. Unapologetically yeah, so, unconventional. So just go and that's be unapologetically you. And, and, and again, I think that's so much easier said than done. And, you know, I, I wake up and, and there are days yeah. when I'm apologetically unconventional where I think to myself, like, you know, maybe I just made that process a little bit more difficult by, you know, not following the status quo. And I have to remind myself that maybe the mm. process was a little bit more difficult, but maybe the outcome was a better result. Um, and, and I think it's, it's tough. Sometimes you wake up and, and you're absolutely owning everything about your mindset and your individuality. Um, so I, I think honestly, the, the best advice that I could give to someone is to just be patient with yourself and to, to really set small and measurable yeah. goals. They don't even have to be small, just measurable goals for yourself. Um, and eventually you're going to find the path that leads to the best version of you. Um, and, and that path is forever changing. You know, the best me five years ago is, is not the best me now. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's honestly the best advice I can give is just really stay patient with yourself. Uh, and if you have the mindset where you want to be you and, and, and you want to, to come out of this hypothetical box that people keep putting you in, you know, just, just be patient and, and make it measurable yeah. for yourself. You don't have to measure yourself the same way that other people measure themselves. Uh, so many great things. Um, be before, you, before you have your final question for yeah. me, I just want to reflect on something that you said. And I was thinking as you were speaking, isn't this interesting how many things I learned from you? Um, I think you said something that resonates a lot with me because I do this. I maybe make the process yep. more difficult, but the outcome is better. A lot of, a lot of the students who go through my class, they, they are very hard on me because uh, my classes are usually very challenging. I'm, um, <laughs> yesterday, one of, my, one of my students said, you, um, you taught me something the first time I met you. I was like, oh, I did? What did I do? He said, you taught me that uh, you can be unapologetically uh, um, high maintenance, but not in that sense, in, in the sense of I should not be apologizing yeah. for having so high standards. That's, I think, that's, that's the right way of saying it. And I, I think a lot of the things that I do in my class, the students resent it at first. I'm, I'm going through uh, a course right now. It's called... Um, track five entrepreneurship, new product development. And I can see when the students are, are resisting, when they're fighting me, they're saying like, why can't yeah. we just do it this way? It's so much easier. And today is Sunday, Thursday, we had Friday, we had their final presentations for the midterm and the results were so amazing. And I can tell how elated they were, um, but I know how much <laughs> they hated me up to, up to Friday. That is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write that down. That's going to be one of my new things. Yep. The process is difficult, yep. but the outcome is better. Sam, before we so wrap up, do you have any final for questions for you? Um, obviously, in, in the age of COVID right now, you know, we're, businesses are facing all these new challenges. And, and so are young adults who are just coming out of college or even just entering college. Um, 
and, and I honestly, I feel so bad for, for that age group, for, for the, the college age kids, the kids that are, that are trying to find their first jobs. And it, it's not what they dreamt that it looked like. Um, so what challenges yeah. do you think young adults entering the workforce are going to experience during this turbulent time? And like, what, what's your best advice for them right now? Great final question and a very hard one. Um, obviously, this feels like unprecedented times, but every massive shock in the history of the world felt unprecedented. Um, like I said, I, I grew up in, in Romania in communism, and uh, when we had a change of regime, we pretty much changed our world overnight. Um, and I was just graduating at that point from... Uh, and I remember people were sort of like looking at each other and be like, what are we going to do now? We were, we were trained to do this and now we have to do the opposite of that. And, um, there's many moments in time in the history of humanity. Let's just look at the last 200 years where there's a massive, massive disruption. Um, so it's not just COVID. I think COVID is a disruption, but we have been disrupted by, the financial crisis, we've been disrupted by the advent of internet, we've been disrupted by the Second World War. So I think, uh, I don't know if you heard me talk about this, Sam, but um, I, um, I don't refer uh, to skills as soft and hard. I, I think that's a detriment to the value of the skills, but yeah. I refer to them as smart and sharp. And one of the smart skills that I think it's probably the most valuable is adaptability. Uh, I think COVID is one thing, but there's going to be another thing after COVID and another thing and another thing. And if there's one thing that I can suggest for people to start building is adaptability. And also, I would say that there's no job that is too small. And this comes from somebody who was uh, a secretary, a dispatch for a truck company. I was a night shift uh, hotel manager. Uh, I was a life sales insurance. I, I, I really did a lot of shitty jobs. But I, I said, what do I need this job for? I need this job to pay the rent. I need yeah. this job to survive or I need this job to get somewhere else. Yeah. And somebody told me recently that it's so dangerous to think that life yeah. is linear. It's not. Life is never linear. And yeah. one thing that you do today is not going to impact in, you know, fundamentally the, the, the thing you did yesterday. You said this so nicely that the same, yeah. you're not the same person you were five years ago. So I would, I would say, if you're aiming for a job on the Wall Street, but the only job you can get is to be a waiter yep. at Au Bon Pain, then do that. Do not, do not look down at, at, at opportunities because it's only Absolutely. up to you to learn something out of it. You know, I, I know a lot of people who learn nothing from fancy jobs and people who yep. learn everything by working that, at That's so well said. Absolutely. Nothing is too small. You got to do something. Yep. It's only small if you make it small, right? It's only small if you make it small. I, I, um, I cannot highlight this enough. A job is big if you make it big. There was such a cute uh, YouTube video or the social media video of this girl interviewing in the United States for a very sort of like non-glamorous position coming yes. out of the interview and dancing in the, yep. in the parking lot. I don't know if you saw that. That is such an expression of joy for something exactly. that you can make yep. it big. If it's you all want about your mindset. Big. 
It is very much. And uh, I have to say, when I started this podcast, I really didn't know what I was doing. But as, as I'm doing this, as I'm doing these interviews, I just realized how much knowledge and wisdom and learnings um, I get in all these interviews. And, and Sam, as always, talking to you is such a learning opportunity for me. You are smart. You are kind. You are reflective. Well, you are a role model. That is for so me. kind and so I'm humbling so grateful to hear. To you know, know you. I, I've looked up to you for many years now. So, getting on this uh, call with you and and being able to have these conversations is honestly a highlight of uh, of the fall for me right now. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Please send my love to your family, to your amazing mother, father, and to your brother, who I, I think he knows by now that he has a peer in you and he Absolutely. can equally look up to you as you look up to him. For those of you listening, this was the extraordinary and highly unconventional Samantha Ross, who was with us today talking about her unconventional path, talking about overcoming disabilities, overcoming doubt, uh, joining a family business and realizing that this is a validation of a lifetime. Sam, you taught us so many things. Thank you for being on the Unconventional Professor podcast and Thank teaching you so us much a lesson for having me. in accepting yourself. I will see you next for the lesson of the day um, segment of the podcast and just... Welcome back, everyone. I hope you enjoy the interview with Samantha Ross as much as I did. Um, she's constantly teaching me things, and this is one of the, the best aspects of my job, that I don't get to teach, but I get to learn every day. So speaking of learning, welcome to the lesson of the day. And today I want to talk about the difference between confidence and arrogance. And the reason why I want to have this lesson of the day is because I am asked many, many times, why am I so confident? Or many times I am told that I am so arrogant. So let me talk a little bit about this too. What's the difference between confidence and arrogance? So let's start by defining both terms. And I actually did a little bit of research and there's a, there's a lot of articles on psychologytoday.com that help you better understand this. Confidence is defined as feeling uh, self-assured. Uh, a feeling that comes from uh, an appreciation of your own abilities or, or qualities. Whereas arrogance is defined by having an exaggerated sense of your importance and abilities. Sam talked today about how she had a lot of doubt about her abilities to learn because of dyslexia, but she managed to overcome that by, by addressing it. So. Um, arrogance is actually not a signal of uh, too much self-esteem, but on the contrary, is a sign of, of its lack. I actually said this many times that arrogant people tend to have a really low self-esteem because they are trying to exaggerate who they are, how important they are, how good they are, um, to, to compensate for what they feel they don't. Uh, arrogance, the, the word arrogance from, from, comes from Latin. Um, the word in Latin is rogare which means to claim for oneself or to assume. 
And if you start paying attention to people that are arrogant, people that are arrogant require a lot of uh, assurance. They, they, they require instant confirmation and validation. They, they acquire a lot of reassuring. And when they don't get that, um, they, they feel anger and uh, uh, they are reluctant to learn from their mistakes and failure. So this is what arrogance is, is the absence of self-esteem and is the attempt to overcompensate by constantly reassuring yourself or asking reassurance from others and the, the reluctance to learn from failures and mistakes. Whereas the word confidence comes from Latin from fidere, which is to trust. And to be self-confident is to trust and have faith in yourself, particularly in your ability to, to engage successfully or at least adequately with the world. Um, a self-confident person is somebody who's able to act on opportunities, to race to new challenges, to, to take control of difficult situation, uh, to learn from, from something and then take responsibility for when things go wrong. And something really interesting that I saw in this article in Psychology Today is the author said that in the absence of confidence, courage takes over. Courage um, uh, allows you to uh, 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 compensate for the, for the lack of confidence, but to, for the desire to do that. And uh, this is a really interesting quote, and I want to be sure that I say it correctly. So confidence operates in the realm of the known. Courage operates in the realm of unknown, uncertainty, and fearsome. Isn't that great? You're confident in the known, but you're courageous in the unknown. I thought that was really, really beautiful. So the lesson of the day is that being confident is a feeling of self-assurance that comes from the appreciation of your own abilities and is not arrogance, whereas arrogance comes from an exaggerating sense of your importance or your abilities. It's important to uh, remember that confidence comes from competence and every now and then, obviously, we all have moments of, of uh, lack of confidence and maybe we go into the uh, overcompensating, which is which is arrogance. But once again, let's remember that a self-confident person is able to act on opportunities, rise to new challenges, and take responsibilities if and when things go wrong. This was a lesson of the day. This was your unconventional professor. My name is Loredana Padurian. Thank you again for listening to another podcast of unconventional people uh, presenting their unconventional point of views. I'm looking forward to our next episode. And in the meantime, stay unconventional and I will talk to you very soon. Thank you all.